So welcome back to another episode of How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data storytelling. Uh, as always, we're brought to you by Kafka Associates, technology recruitment experts. Uh, thank you to them for their continued support. On the show today, I'm speaking to Stephen Fall. Um, I think it's fair to say he's a bit of a, a veteran of the Scottish technology scene, not saying he's old though, and currently strategy and technology leader at William Grant & Sons. So welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you, Liam. I meant veteran because I feel like you've done loads of events and uh, been kind of like a voice in the tech, tech scene in Scotland for a while, not not anything untoward. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, I, I have, you know, so I, I, I've been around for a while, uh, been involved in some great initiatives and, and you know, got to know lots of people within the, the Scottish technology industry. Yeah, and it's, it's a good one as well. And we'll touch on that. But anyone that follows the show, we always jump into kind of like a bit of a, a whistle stop tour of your, your background, um, starting with education mostly. Um, and I think I'm right in saying from looking at your profile and background, you have done a couple of degrees. So one in maths and computing and an MBA in business administration, but I think that was later in life, right? That's right. So I, I took a bit of a, a non-traditional approach as far as education was concerned. I don't tell too many people this, but really I, I, I never saw myself as being a data professional. Uh, when I left school, uh, I had aspirations to be a rock and roll star. Uh, so I <laughs> So I couldn't wait to leave school to go and earn the money that you needed to buy the guitars and to get the studio time. You know, I left school with, with good qualifications. I had my five hires, my seven O-levels, but I couldn't wait to get out to work. And then what happened was subsequently recognised that, you know, I should go back and do a degree. So I did a, a mathematics and computing degree with the Open University. And then when I was at Agreco, I got the opportunity to go and do an MBA at the University of Strathclyde. So all, all really good, you know, and there's an element of having the experience that you can tie in with some of the education uh, by taking that, that different approach. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think the reason that I always ask this, and I'm always kind of wary of continuing with the education to start the show but i think it's because nobody's done the same thing yet like no one's had that same path like i work in data so i did a degree in x and started my career as y like it, nobody's done that so that's kind of why i always like to start there how did you actually kind of get into the world of technology because you spent a decent number of years as a bi developer but how did it how did it kick off so my background was in electrical and electronic engineering uh, and I went down to London when I was 20 and worked for some big organizations. So I worked for Ford Motor Company. So it was all robotics, automation, programmable logic controllers. Went to work for the Daily Mail in their printing plant. So again, all highly automated uh, technologies. Uh, and I had this real affinity for computer programming. So I found that out as I was doing my degree uh, and managed to build a couple of applications that, that just improved the efficiency and the production processes at the Daily Mail. And that allowed me then to transition into their systems department. Uh, and I loved that. So, you know, that was real kind of broad based. And when I returned to Scotland, so my plan was to, to go, go to London, give it three months and see if I liked it. Fifteen years later, I finally moved back to Scotland. Uh, and at that point in time, I said to myself, OK, now I'm going to go and take a, a full time developer role. Uh, I worked for a, a financial services company uh, in George Square called BCW, uh, and mainly they were focused on debt collection. But I get the opportunity to build an application for AT&T, the, the telecoms giant. Uh, 
So they had a contract with them, and I built this system which was invoice dispute management, uh, which was used all over the world. It was a, a real successful application. And one element of that was reporting. And that's where I, I first really started to get involved in data. And it was just at the time when data warehousing was starting to become a big thing in organizations. And, and it just kind of grew from there. No, it's really interesting. I mean, again, it's the I've been a bit of a theme of the show that people have picked up bits from their current job and implemented some things that either make things better or more efficient. And then that's how they get into what everyone now knows as kind of data and analytics. So um, it's pretty it's pretty cool. And then, yeah, you mentioned Agreco, you did your MBA when you worked with them. So you joined them in their kind of BI and applications team, uh, working as a manager in that team before kind of heading up the entire software and analytics division. So um, we've actually had Andy from Agreco on the show before, so we know a bit about them. But it's probably worth pointing out that you kind of like spearheaded their approach to data analytics, right? Like that, that was one of the big things you did there. So it was, I was incredibly fortunate. So after BCW, I went to work for Merrill Lynch. Uh, at the time, they're the world's second biggest investment bank uh, to build a, a management information system for them. It was all based around what they called residential real estate, which really was subprime mortgages. Uh, so that was a real roller coaster ride. Uh, and when the market crashed, uh, I was fortunate that Agreco were really just beginning their BI journey and I got the opportunity to join Agreco on a contract basis. Or, originally a three-month contract, there's a bit of a theme here, uh, and I stayed there for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So I, I contracted for about 18 months and then they asked me to come on board in a full-time capacity. And Agreco was just fantastic for me. Such a great organisation. But the, the leadership in Agreco I think that was a real important part of the the whole journey for myself was that you got so much buy-in, so much support, and they recognized that as an organization, they could make a a lot of real business benefits from the application of technology. So I went on from the the managing the the business intelligence team, uh, then took responsibility for a, a very small software development team, which over time we grew. Uh, enterprise architecture was another area that I, I established and managed within within Agreco, and one of the best projects that that I worked on, and there were so many good ones at Agreco, but the one that was a real catalyst for change was the the work we did with the the team out in Louisiana in the remote operations centre. So Agreco, uh, their main business is, is generators and generator hire, and their generators. Generators are fitted with telemetry units. So all of the information from all the generators worldwide is collected. Uh, And what the team out in the the remote operations center asked us to do was to put together an application where they could track, uh, you know, the work that their team was doing uh, and get a bit of a a history around the the various assets that they were looking after. And, And it was successful. It started out in the world of SharePoint. And then it evolved. And once there was a recognition of how much of a differentiator this could be for Agreco, we got the opportunity to actually go and build a a proper platform for them. Uh, We took a a, a move into Azure, which was really just quite emergent at that point in time. I had a fantastic team there, so built this whole uh, microservices-based architecture 
which allowed us to build the platform for the guys in the remote operations center, but also reuse the same APIs to build things like customer portals, customer mobile apps, technician mobile apps, and really evolve that whole platform. So that was brilliant. Uh, but we were a very innovative team. Uh, and I've always had this kind of affinity for innovation. So one of the questions that I asked my team was, you know, we're collecting all of this data. If we can identify patterns in the data that lead to particular breakdowns or failures, then surely we could build a completely predictive application that would just help enhance the, the job that the guys at the remote operations center are doing and ultimately improve the, the level of customer service that, that we provide. Uh, so we did this based on a, a proof of concept. It was really small scale to begin with. Azure Machine Learning had just come onto the market. It was like kind of the same month. So what you could do is you could now start to run some experiments for pennies, where previously you'd have had to invest in all the hardware to, to actually get the compute power to, to run the machine learning. So we did that on a small scale. Uh, we, we could see there was going to be a lot of potential in it, demonstrated it to the senior management team. So Grant Nairn was the CIO at Greco at the time. He loved the idea, saw the potential, and gave us the, the backing to, to go and take this further. So we... Uh, went to work with the guys at the data lab who had just been newly established. Uh, we also went and uh, we got some help from the, the University of Strathclyde. So we ran a pilot program with ourselves, the University of Strathclyde and the data lab. And that was like a year-long pilot involving very many elements across our organization and the guys out in Louisiana. And we used that to, to prove that there was real mileage in this predictive alerting. And then from there... Uh, you know, we had some real successes. Uh, the, the team did a brilliant job on that. Uh, and that allowed me then to get the buy-in to go and formalize a, an advanced analytics team and, and bring in, you know, data scientists and data engineers and, and, and take that forward. So re really exciting times. And, and when I look back on it, you know, a fantastic team, some fantastic achievements. And, you know, at Agreco, they, they have taken that and, and they've, you know, enhanced it and, and they've built upon that and, and they're taking that whole journey forward. You know, they've established a, a really fantastic team there. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great story. It's always one of my favourite ones when people ask, like, what kind of examples of technology teams are there in Scotland? And people always expect you to say, like, Skyscanner and Fangio and financial services. And you kind of, people aren't expecting the likes of Agreco and a few other people we work with where, it's maybe not obvious, but behind a lot of it is just really, really clever, well-designed technology. Um, and you mentioned a few interesting things there about getting the buy-in and also the fact that you kind of focused on that one area. So I'm going to come back to that, actually, because um, it's probably worth digging into a bit more. But we'll quickly jump into pretty much three years ago, right? It was like January 2018, so um, we're creeping up on three years. Um, you moved on from Agreco after a decade uh, working with that team to William Grant & Sons. So people probably know William Grant & Sons, no matter where they're listening, kind of whiskey producer, but they might not know, and I don't think I really appreciated it until I started speaking to you, but the kind of size and scope of like all of the brands, like the company as a whole, it's massive, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's an enormous and it's a fantastic organization, William Grant Sons. So I always do my bit as a brand ambassador anytime I talk about the organization. So, you know, you, you've mentioned Glenfiddich, you've got Hendrix, the Balvenie, 
Sailor Jerry, Drambuie, Monkey Shoulder, the, the list goes on and on. And there's lots of new brands that, that the company are developing, uh, which are emerging. It's it's a phenomenal organization. It's operating across, I think, 44 different offices across the world. Uh, and it's incredibly profitable. It's a great organization to work for. Yeah, I mean, I, even just some of those names, like you just, I don't think people appreciate like how there's a few kind of like key players in the drinks industry that they run most of the big brands and William Grant & Sons are one of the, the massive ones. But yeah, you were brought in kind of to do something similar as a Greco, right? Kind of come in and be that person that can drive data and analytics and make it useful, which must be pretty interesting in the drinks industry. So yeah, that's right. I mean, I moved on from Agreco. I had a great 10 years there, but I was looking for a new opportunity. And what I really liked about William Grant & Sons was the, the ambition of the organization. So I joined just at the beginning of their kind of transformational journey. The number one deliverable for me when I joined William Grant & Sons was to take forward their data warehousing and reporting and build some standardization around that. Uh, but I was very fortunate, you know, w within probably six months of being there, I was running most of the, the operational uh, part of the organization. I was looking after an ERP team, looking after the Hyperion team. And when my boss, who was the, the CIO there, went to run the, the transformation program formally, I stepped into the, the interim CIO role at William Grant Sons. Spent 18 months doing that. Absolutely loved it. You know, got to, to work in some really big initiatives that helped to shape the, the IT and, and digital strategy for the organization. So really rewarding. Uh, and it's been a, a fantastic place to work for me. Yeah, no, I bet. And it's just like so many different things to get involved in. And, and from your point of view, being someone that likes that kind of innovation piece, it must be quite exciting because you're in a position where you can suggest a lot of things, but also just impact a lot. So the innovation journey at William Grant & Sons, it's really interesting. So where all the, I would consider that the great innovation takes place in the organization is in the world of marketing and new product development. So these guys are phenomenal. So if you look at, for example, Hendrix, that's a brand that's been built from nothing to become a, a household name and a market leader. So the, the guys in the marketing and the product development departments do the most phenomenal job, probably the best teams in the world that are focused on that. The world of innovation within IT is a little bit different. And there's some reasons for that. And there's some, reason, some reasons why there are some constraints around innovation within the whiskey industry. So, you know, that there are certain protocols that have to be followed. You know, so you need to have the, the whiskey distilled, distilled in Scotland. It needs to be... Uh, warehoused in Scotland. It needs to be in oak barrels that are under 700 litres in size, etc., etc. So there's lots of uh, protocols there. And there is an enormous pride within William Grant & Sons around the heritage of the organisation and the quality of the spirit that they produce. So you don't really want to be doing too much from an innovation perspective to tamper with any of that. You know, I don't think that would be welcomed and I don't think it's necessary based on how well the organisation do. But there are great opportunities. So if you look at, for example, the blockchain, so blockchain gives you great opportunities when you look at provenance. So if you want to buy an expensive 
bottle of malt whiskey. As a consumer, it's fantastic if you can look at the provenance and you can see the journey of that bottle of whiskey from grain to glass, as they say in the industry. You know, there's great stuff there. And actually, Ailsa Bay, which is one of the the, the whiskies, the malt whiskies that, that Grants produce, was the very first single malt on the blockchain. So there's great applications of innovation and technology that can work in the organization. There's lots of other great stuff that you can look at. So you can talk about, you know, what you can do around component failure. So predictive analytic systems for production. Uh, you can also look at how you can use data and analytics in the world of logistics and the supply chain. And William Grantsons are doing some of that. And then another area which, you know, I think everybody in the whiskey industry looks at is what can you do to reduce maturation losses? So most people will have heard of the angel share. So when you put the, the spirit into the barrel, and put it into the warehouse, you always get less back when you take that out uh, than you actually put in. So they call it the angel share, and, and the technical terminology is maturation losses. So the use of data and analytics to understand what impacts the maturation loss and how you can reduce maturation losses, it's a long-term project, but if you can be successful there, you can have an enormous impact to the, the bottom line. Yeah, no, I bet. And uh, I was just thinking about this. I think I said to you when we spoke before, but so my dad was a cooper for 44 years. He just retired recently. And uh, even just speaking to him, like the whole whiskey making process, it's still quite like old school. And because of what you said, because of all the heritage behind it, the pride behind it, and also the the protocols as well, does that make it harder to have an impact on certain areas, but then things like logistics, maturation losses, kind of fault finding, that's where it can come in. Like you don't have to get too technical with the kind of nuts and bolts of it. It's like the, the supporting stuff. As an organization, William Grant Sons is massively entrepreneurial. So they're always looking for new ideas and they're looking for ways that we can improve efficiencies and ways that you can drive productivity. I think, you know, the the actual creation of the spirit uh, is something that you really don't want to touch. And it's an incredibly, incredibly complex process. You know, when you think that every single bottle of Glenfiddich 12-year-old that hits the shelves has to look the same, smell the same, taste the same. That is an enormous undertaking. The people that make that happen are incredibly skillful. So I think what you've got to do is you've got to pick and choose where you think there are opportunities for innovation. I think when you look at the spirits industry as a whole, though, uh, there are really good opportunities that are emerging. So each individual market and each individual type of product has its own constraints. But for instance, if you look at the Japanese whiskey industry, uh, which is evolving and becoming very popular, you know, they don't have the same constraints that this, the, the Scotch whiskey industry does have. So they are looking at things, you know, when, when you look at what is happening in research and development labs and, and what they're doing in universities, where they're building artificial intelligence models that can taste and artificial intelligence models that can smell, and then couple that with some of the technology. So they're using ultrasound technologies to artificially age spirit. So a spirit that maybe is three years old that's been through this ultrasound process 
can taste something more akin to or look something more akin to maybe an eight-year-old spirit. So the use of innovative technologies there, there's, there's definitely going to be some value for certain spirit types or certain organisations. But I'd, I'd hasten to say it won't be the whiskey industry that will take advantage of that just because of those controls and protocols. Yeah, no, I remember you um, mentioned that when we spoke. So I was going to bring that up in a second, but I'm so glad you did because I wasn't sure if I'd remembered it properly. But uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose the example you just gave there about the kind of like ultrasound agent it for a proper like whiskey connoisseur, that's just not going to fly, right? Like that's not going to work. But for someone that just enjoys a glass now and then, and if it's a, if they can make it cheaper on the shelf, get the branding on point, then people will buy it, right? So you can see the you can see the benefit. So I think that there are opportunities. I think it's when when you look at who are the the target market for each particular brand, each particular variant, then th- there will be a market for that. You know the the. The, the brands that, that William Grant and Sons produce are, are all really kind of premium end brands. You know, they're coveted by the consumer, but there are other areas where there will be organisations who might take advantage of people who are, are looking for something that's maybe not quite such a, a premium product. Yeah, I mean, obviously the Japanese whiskey market is exploding as well. So um, you can, and they're always at that kind of cusp of technology. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how how they get on with that. But yeah, you're right. The Scottish whiskey world is not changing that dramatically. And do you see kind of, is there some things within William Grant where it's just been so obvious from your other walks of life kind of in business and, and in data that you've just been able to say like, well, we need to start doing this. Or like you, you mentioned that you were brought in to kind of standardize the BI and reporting. So is, is that just been like, you've had that experience and it's been just a case of getting on with it? So I think there's an element of that. I think, you know, you, you go into any organization and you see opportunities. What, uh, is apparent to me is that in, in William Grant's sons, there's a recognition that things need to change, that they, they need to move forward. You know, they, they are a massively ambitious organisation and therefore to support that ambition and for long-term success, you need to have the, the correct underlying infrastructure. So not just the IT infrastructure, but across the whole of the organisation. And that's what's driving the the new operating model uh, and the business transformation programme. So, you know, it's great to be involved in, in those initiatives and to be able to, to, to put your stamp on some of that and help to shape some of that. So I think from the, the world of reporting and analytics, there's so many opportunities within the organization. What I'm really focused on for the coming year is that, you know, as we implement the the, the ERP system, so we're doing a brand new ERP implementation, there's lots of activity around the world of digitization. It's just making sure that we, we do it correctly, that we have the right standards, the right governance in place, and that it's a, a journey that we take as an organization that's given benefit to, to everyone who needs access to the data. Yeah, sometimes the kind of ERP stuff, the governance side of data, like it's not the in the news, like AI is the future stuff, but it's kind of what underpins everything, right? Like you need to get, at a, at a company the size of William Grant, if you don't have that stuff right, there's no point in doing the predictive model and there's no point in doing the maturation losses, like not, nothing will work properly. 
I completely agree. You know, you have to have strong foundations. Uh, if you don't have the right foundations in place, then you can have a lot of activity that might give you some short-term benefit, but longer term, it's just not going to stand up to the the, the needs of a, a massive enterprise. Yeah, I've spoken to lots of companies as well. When they're doing like an ERP launch, they maybe don't have someone with your experience and also the experience generally of some of the team you're working with, but they end up like with this hacked together solution that every team uses differently and it's all it's so customized that there was almost no point in buying it. Like if you get it right, then it's worth the investment. But if you get it wrong, it can be very, very wrong. So yeah, I think it's it's, it's useful having a, a team that is keen for that innovation. Otherwise, it can just be an expensive exercise, right? Sure. ERP implementations everywhere are, are fraught with difficulty. Uh, and I've never been at an organization where they're really, really happy with their ERP system. But I think what grants are doing really well is that they've been doing a lot of planning. So there's a lot of upfront work to ensure standardization is massive. So making sure that you have got a standard model that can be utilized across the whole of the organization. You know, it's a a company that grows significantly year on year, either organic growth or through mergers and acquisitions. So what they need is they need that really solid standard framework that supports that growth long-term. And actually something that we... We talk about kind of like sometimes directly and sometimes indirectly on the show um, is kind of getting buy-in from quote-unquote the business. You've been pretty successful at this kind of, well, I think throughout your career, but certainly in Agreco, certainly in grants. And you've also managed to kind of sit between data and the business quite a lot. Do you think, is that something that you learned early on and something you've appreciated from earlier on? And if anyone's kind of listening and they're struggling to have an impact in the business they're working in, kind of how do you get it? So thank you, first of all. Uh, so, the, you know, the, there's a lot of hard yards in making that happen. And, you know, a bit of kind of practice makes perfect, to be quite honest. So, you know, I've got a few battle scars from situations where you thought you had the best technology solution but really couldn't get that business buy-in or business sponsorship. So what I've learned is that it's really important that you take the business, if you like, on that journey with you. And at the end of the day, it's about what you provide, the service that you and your team provide for the business that's going to be important. It's the stakeholders that are going to determine whether or not you are successful, not how shiny the technology is. So I think that that's a really important point is that you need to build those really strong relationships with the stakeholders. And there's nothing quite like uh, having some really good examples of how data can drive profitability or, or productivity to get people on board and get people to understand what you can do for them. So, you know, I think at Grants, we've had some brilliant examples of how we've helped to drive kind of uh, net productivity scores through the use of data. been a massive success. Everyone in the organization can see it's a success and that's a real springboard for as we move into next year and the ERP implementation and a whole shift in the way we're going to deliver data to the organization to to get that buy-in. Yeah, I think you had so many good points there, but I think one of the things that I've learned from speaking to people like you and, and trying to help other people is like the shiny technology is great, but if it's not driving profitability or some sort of business change, you're really going to struggle because you can be the smartest 
data scientist, machine learning person, whatever you, whatever you might be, if you can't kind of tell the CIO or the FD or someone of that ilk, like the results of what you're doing, then they're not, you're not really going to get much from them. So absolutely. And again, these are lessons that I've learned over the course of my career. What I was incredibly successful with at Agreco was running very small, low-cost proof of concepts, almost doing doing work under the radar, you know, siphoning off a bit of time from a few developers to go and build a little proof of concept type platform. So I remember the very first mobile app we ever developed, which was a health and safety app within Agreco, was one of the teams. So he was top notch. I gave him the concept. He went away and built a mock-up app overnight in his own time, which we then took to the CIO and said, we think this would be a good thing to do. And then all of a sudden, you've got some real momentum behind that project. And, you know, you you just continue to develop these small proof of concepts that people can look at and they can touch it and, and they can, you know, what you're doing is you're really demonstrating. So rather than telling people what you're trying to do, you can do the, the show and tell and you get that real buy-in, you know, it can be instantaneous. And then all of a sudden you've got a real excitement around what you're trying to do and you get that business buy-in. It's almost built in because you're working with stakeholders from the business at the very ground level and you let them help to shape the way that technology emerges. So, you know, that's that was that was great at Agreco, really successful on so many projects that we worked on. There's a little bit of like ask for forgiveness not for permission but to an extent like you don't want to go pissing people off and getting sacked but like there's a little bit like you said like work a little bit of time into your day into your month to like try and do small proof of concepts and not get carried away because i think one of the interesting things you said like the predictive analytics for louisiana with the greco that was a project where you did kind of incremental steps you got the data lab involved you got the unis involved so that's obviously cost saving because you're using uh, like interns essentially or like proof of concepts and then you can slowly build a team rather than maybe saying to your CIO I've got this idea I want to hire five data scientists at 50 grand a year because they're not going to sign off on that whereas if you can do it slowly and over a year or, or, or however long and do one thing really really well do you think it's fair that like the next time you can almost ask for whatever you want because you've, you've proven it so it did work that way with the, the advanced analytics team we got to a stage where we demonstrated success on a few occasions. So this, it wasn't an overnight success by by any means. There was a lot of hard work, uh, a lot of smart people, lots of people across the whole organization who helped to feed into that work that we were doing. But you eventually get to the stage where you are demonstrating success and you're demonstrating that you've been successful at a low cost. And from there, we got the buy-in to say, right, okay, go and build a formal team to actually go and, and take this forward. Is it important as well, do you think, and again, this all depends on what company you're in and the size and the scope, but in the size of companies you've been working in, do you think it's quite important that data talks to all areas of the business, like they're not their own thing? Do you mean trying to reduce silos of data? Yeah, like having a data team makes sense and having data scientists that work on X, Y, and Z makes sense. But I I always think that there's some companies, and there's examples of this with people that I know, that they're brought in as a data scientist. Their job is to create X value by doing this. And then they're not really introduced to anyone else in the business. They're not... 
and if they are introduced, it's like, where do you keep your data? I'm going to go find it and do something to it. Like there, there's no real like, they don't really get kind of ingrained in uh, not even necessarily the culture, but they don't understand the pain points of that person compared to that person, or they don't really understand what the engineers at Greco are actually doing. Like, do you think that's important? Oh, it's incredibly important. I've had experience of the data scientist locked in a dark room with a, a set of data that's going to try and come up with the the answer for you. He's going to have the silver bullet to to solve all your problems, and it does not work. But what does work is you know having those really strong ties between your data scientists, your data engineers, a real understanding of what it is that the engineering team, so at Agreco, what the engineering teams are doing. I mean, we brought together cross-functional groups. So we had guys from the remote operations center. We had design engineers, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, uh, product engineers, you know, reliability engineers across the whole scope of that organization, everybody feeding in to help us to build the products that were going to add value to the organization. So you can't never underestimate the amount of work that's going to be required and how important those relationships are. Yeah, no, I think it's bang on. I mean, I think I've used this example before on the show, but one of the companies we've done work with, they sent their data science team onto the factory floor of one of their clients because the client thought they had a problem with something uh, and a data scientist had tried to work it out, but then they said, well, maybe we should go and see. And they went and worked out how this team was actually using like basically what they had in the factory and it turned out they had like an inventory slash stock problem not what they thought and it meant they could change the model it was pretty simple but if they just stayed in their office and tried to work it out based on the data they were given they would never have ever got to that conclusion so it would just be a big circle of doing data science for the sake of it so i think it's, it's really important yeah absolutely so i mean if you look at the world of six sigma they call it go to gemba Right, so you've got to go and see what's actually happening and, and see it with your own eyes and, and you know get the systems working for you so that you've got that real deep understanding of them before you try to do any work to, to try and improve them or, or to enhance them. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's a great example. You've done a decent amount of hiring in your time, I think it's fair to say, kind of across contract, perm, developers, data scientists, you name it. Is there anything you've learned from, I suppose, being hired yourself but also when you've been growing teams whatever the skill set might be um is there anything you always look for is there anything that you've kind of kind of held on to as a hiring manager and indeed as a separate question any kind of tips for someone trying to grow their own data teams i think sometimes you, you can just uh you can identify someone who's going to be a real talent uh, and going to make a real difference within your organization. Sometimes you'll find that someone is contracting for you and, and you just know that you have to bring them on in a full-time capacity. So I've had that a couple of times. And then we used a lot of, uh, you know, the, the, the relationships with the universities and bringing in graduates. So we, we were very successful with graduates at uh, Agreco. Uh, where you can, you know, you, you get a look at someone, you can identify that they've got lots of potential uh, and then you can bring them on to, so that they become, you know, a, a real asset to your organisation. You asked me about building a team. 
right? So I, I've got you know lots and lots of ideas around that. I've, I've built some brilliant teams, uh, you know, I, and I consider it to be something that's a bit of a strength of mine is the ability to to create a real high performing team. So I, I've kind of distilled that to three main points. So the first thing I think is you really need to create a great working environment, a place that's fun to work, you know, that element of people getting out in their bed and really wanting to come to work in the morning. Uh, you know, there's the, that element again of that people who play together tend to stay together. So as you're looking at retention of teams, if you can build that strong environment, you know, the team environment, then that that's a, a really big element for me. Uh, I think there's a, a piece around understanding each individual within your team. So, you know, what are their strengths? But I think more importantly, what are their ambitions? So, you know, how do you challenge them to be the best that they possibly can be? How do you invest in them to make sure that they can get to where they want to go while at the same time delivering masses of value for your organization? Uh, and then there's the second, second last one, which is recognize and reward great work across your team and, and by individuals. And the other side of that coin is that, you you know, you need to really deal with people who are underperforming. That's a massively important part of building a, a high-performing team too uh, and celebrate the successes. So when you've got a team who are delivering time and time again, you need to make sure that that team know that they are really valued uh, by your, yourself and your organisation. And of course, Lima, it would be remiss of me not to say that you need to have some really good partners to help you to do that as far as uh, recruitment's concerned. You know, so individuals and recruitment companies who understand your organisation and understand your team dynamic and can help identify talent that would be a really good fit for you. No, I think that's a brilliant answer. I think uh, my biggest takeaway from that is they're rewarding the team when they're doing, not rewarding the team, but letting them know they're doing really well. Because the amount of people we speak to in the job that I do that are doing amazing work and are actually quite happy where they are, but they're just a bit jaded because leadership haven't reviewed their pay or they've not been given the kind of pat on the back or whatever it might be. It's stuff that you could save if you got ahead of it. But normally the answer is that they wait till they quit and then offer them a big counter. And it doesn't, it's too late. I mean, it's not always about money, but it's just sometimes it's just like they just want a bit of recognition and it's it's quite easy to do, really. So it's a massive thing for me, you know, making sure that you've got a team that are really well engaged. I think it always helps if you can get them brilliant projects to work on, uh, but, you know, and, and give them access to some of the, the cutting edge technologies that always keeps people happy. Uh, you know, if they get the opportunity to work on something that's innovative, that's another great way to retain your talent. But yeah, you know, you have to you have to invest your time and a bit of money into creating that really strong relationship with your team and building that team ethos. Yeah, hundred percent. And just pretty much my last question: um, how how has that been from your point of view, like with the team and the dynamic and making sure people are happy and still having fun? How has it been remotely? So. It's a bit of a challenge, to be honest. Uh, I think that's the, one of the things that, that I've recognised more than anything else uh, since uh, we've been working from home in the pandemic is that you don't have that same amount of fun that you would have in the office, just a bit of a chat, you know, 
uh, even people going out and getting a bit of lunch together, going for a walk together, you know, having the, the social element, you know, bringing the, the outside world into the workplace, which just adds a, a bit more to the whole team dynamic. You know, you, you definitely lose a bit of that working remotely. So you'll see in the background, I've got my, my Christmas stuff up and, and the, the little office set up. So we did the, the team Christmas meeting just the other day. So that was that was real fun. There wasn't an awful lot of work focus there. Uh, we took some time out to, to do a little bit of recognition and celebrate some of the successes over the course of the year. But then just a, a bit of banter and a bit of fun and everybody turns up with their Santa hats and their, their Christmas jumpers. But it's hard to sustain that over the course of like a nine-month period. So I, I feel that's an area where once we do get back into the office, we'll need to have some extra focus on is just, you know, re-engaging and building that, that team dynamic again. Yeah, no, I totally agree. We're actually going to do a bit of like a surprise Christmas lunch for everyone on Friday where we're going to tell them to go and get whatever they want from delivery or locally and we'll pay for it. And then everyone's going to jump on over lunch, grab a beer and just like just chat for a bit because we've not actually had the whole company sit down together for ages. Um, so yeah, we're going to do that. But I can tell you that because by the time this goes out, that will have happened. So <laughs> I won't, I won't ruin the surprise. Yeah. I think that's it for me. I mean, I, I really appreciate you coming on. That's been really, really interesting. And I think there'll be a bunch of people that will either totally agree with everything we talked about in terms of getting buying from the business, or I might even be a little bit of a light bulb moment to focus their attention properly and, and try and get some real buy-in next year um so no i really appreciate it um thanks for coming on and all this talk about bevy i've got a hendrix looking at right at me and it's going to be very hard not to drink it but it's only wednesday so very good so it's the right choice brand wise liam and i'll say that so well there's, done. There's, a, there's a few but the hendrix is the one that i can see <laughs> label facing forward so um, although i must admit i'm not a whiskey drinker and having a dad that's a cooper for 40 years is it's it's, it's a hard conversation but there's a lot of whiskey in my dad's house that i just can't i can't do it so william grant's sons are, are very generous to the employees so you'll see in the, the back behind me I, i've got a, a nice collection of spirits uh, and mostly they will be benefiting my friends and family over the, the Christmas period. So uh, if we were doing this in January, my, my stocks would be much depleted. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> well, no, have a great Christmas when it comes. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. You're welcome. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs>